On today's episode, Richard's Injury Success Story. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. success story underway um i like most things i do repurpose a lot of content and when i had richard on to talk about his phd to appear on the phd podcast for a success story um the content contains so much great information so much of the the lessons that we learn within the podcast itself and just seeing the revelations that he had and the outcome that he had, I thought this would be great for the Run Smarter podcast. And if you're wondering, if you do have PHT, proximal hamstring tendinopathy, um, go check out that podcast because a lot of people listen to this and not actually know that I have a second podcast, which is the Overcoming Proximal Hamstring Tendinopathy podcast, (laughs) long title, but dedicated to that specific condition, dedicated to you understanding managing, treating, overcoming that condition specifically. And while a a bit of it is repurposed from the Run Smarter podcast, there are some solo episodes dedicated to PHT. And also at the end of every episode, if it is repurposed, I kind of chime in and have my own take on how this lesson can be applied to PHT specifically. So I do have a, I've had a lot of people reach out and say, love the Run Smarter podcast. And I asked how their their running's been going and they said, not great. I have PHT. And I said, oh, have you, uh, are you familiar with this other podcast? And they have no idea. So thought I'd announce it on this podcast just in case, just to help those people out. Or if you do know someone who does have PHT, just um, share that podcast because it's obviously right up their alley. Um, so with Richard, uh, had a chat to him. He has had PHT started in 2009 and he had a nasty stint of it for about five years and managed to overcome it. He did self-confess that it lasted that long due to like mismanagement for such a long period of time, managed to start doing the right things and, uh, managed to overcome it. But then it resurfaced with his change in, uh, life routine, like as lockdown happened. Um, so a second wave of PHT that started last year. And rather than just going through his story, like I do with normal success stories of when it started, how it felt, how it developed, um, what over, how, what treatments were effective and how you overcome it. What, what do you like now? That, that kind of story timeline. We decided to write down a few dot points that he found most effective. And we talk about things like injury loading, recovery, um, 
getting adequate sleep, intensities like intensity distributions and ratios. Talk about a, a few other modalities or manual therapies, dry needling, PRP, some of these um, tendon-based rehabs and how he felt, what was successful, what wasn't so successful. And yeah, uh, it was right up the alley of the Run Smarter podcast and was happy that he was on. It was a great chat. And yeah, you guys will love it. So without further ado, let's bring on Richard. Richard, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for asking me along. You've got a great podcast. I love listening to it. Yeah, brilliant. So um, how about we get started with you just introducing yourself, where you're from and how your PHT injury came about? Yeah, so in normal life, um, I'm a specialist doctor and I'm very interested in um, exercise, particularly in older people like myself, being 60 plus years old. Um, I'm also very supportive of the community being involved in exercise. So I'm one of the organisers for Park Run in North Sydney. So I think Park Run's a wonderful, all-inclusive thing, which you know people don't have to be athletes. They can just turn up and walk as much as they want, and it's really supportive, and people progress from there. So Runs became a, a great community event and lots of social supports. And the other group I'm with is Kirribilli Runners, which are a great group. Nice one. And when it comes to the injury itself, like how long ago did that arise and how'd that come about? Well, I've always been quite sporty. Um, I've done many city to surfs since 1976 and I played soccer for about 15 years. And when the World Masters came to Sydney in 2009, I thought, well, here's an opportunity to do something. What can I do? And unfortunately, just before then playing soccer, which is a sort of explosive sprinting type sport, I hurt my right um, hamstring. So it was a high hamstring injury. And uh, I just foolishly, I decided, well, I'll just ignore that and push on through. And I thought, yeah, what event can I train for for the Masters? So I thought, yes, I'll do the 100 metres, which was in retrospect a silly idea. So it's a you know, pretty high risk for, for tendon injuries. <laughs> you know, in retrospect, I should have gone for a longer, slower distance. But, um, you know, I got a coach who was very good. And I sought out a good physio who said, oh, well, we'll just try and get you through and then we'll do some rehab afterwards. So I tried a whole gamut of different treatments. But I think, you know, in retrospect, it was the, the failure was my own self-management where I just kept going and going. So, you know, I was 50 years old and I thought, oh, yes, I'm, I still feel like I'm 18. It'll get better. But one thing, as you get you know, older, certainly over about 30, if you get a, a tendon injury, it's very slow to heal. And this is my first tendon injury, and I just didn't understand what was going on, even as a doctor. Mm. And it, it's safe to say that, like, the longer you have it for, the harder it is to get rid of. Like, I think one of the most profound things about running injuries is if you can catch it as early as you can and be proactive within, like, a couple of days, you can make significant gains really quickly. But if you... Like you say, if you ignore yeah. it and it starts to develop, like the symptoms start to get worse, but also the longer you've had it for as well, once that starts to manifest itself, then it's it's very hard to start um, progressing in the direction of recovery. Yes, absolutely. So that's what I did. I was silly. I kept pushing on and I had the, that injury first time for five years. And it really only got better when I, I stopped playing soccer with that you know explosive acceleration type movement. And just let it settle down, and then I started getting to the gym and doing some uh, some weights, 
progressively, doing it heavier and heavier, like um, doing deadlifts and squats. And I think doing that at a time where I'd stopped, you know, the, the aggravating ex you know, exercise, the, the sprinting helped a lot. And that made it like 100% better. But in the meantime, I did try lots of other different treatments as well. I'm not sure if you want to go into those. We might go into those at the end, um, but I'm curious, you said you've had this for five years and I, I, I'd be curious well, to know like time. at its worst, it like did it, yeah. okay. <laughs> and did it ever yeah. stop you from running? Did it ever like inhibit a lot of those activities? You just kept, kept staying active. It just was sore. Oh, it came to the, the time, even just walking. And, and sitting, you know, sitting is classic. And that's another thing I didn't realize that sitting causes compression of the tendon. And I just, I just didn't understand what was going on there. But, you know, with, you know, with further research, I discovered, you know, sitting causes compression. So, um, you know, initially trying to limit the sitting, but then progressively getting back into it, you know, and not, not avoiding it. So I guess sort of taking a, a sensible balanced non-avoidance strategy towards it. Mm. And like just in conversation with coming up with like the content of today's episode, you, you sort of emailed me a whole list of dot points that you found was very profound and very beneficial to your recovery. Um, uh -huh. And the first one was being like when it comes to loading in general um, and running, keeping the pain levels below a three out of 10. And I'm curious into your, I guess, definition or like internal perception of what how you classed it less than three or over three, were there any sort of characteristics that categorized it in, into those pain levels? Um, well, I guess like, you know, the usual thing, it's the way we talk to patients is 10 out of 10 is the worst pain you could ever imagine. Like if I, you know, sawed your leg off and zero is nothing. So, you know, with, with running, my aim was to keep it very mild. And I think what's really important for people to know is that a bit of mild pain is not bad. So, you know, as you've mentioned, your tendons need a bit of loading to heal and, um, and remodel um, and, and complete rest is not going to do that. So just being in tune to your body and being careful when you're running and always thinking about it's not the run you're doing today, it's about how you're going to be tomorrow, the next day and the week and the months after and just being very patient. Mm -hmm. how, how I would like to, usually when new runners, beginners, they, they really struggle to internalize what a, a five out of 10 might be compared to a three out of 10, particularly if you have that entire scale of 10 being the most pain imaginable. It's, it's sometimes very hard mm. to gauge what the twos and threes are and what the best way I could come up with it is like a pain level, which is severe enough where you notice it there, like during the run, it's definitely there, but it's not severe enough that you, it hinders your mechanics in any way. Like you feel like, you're able to plant yourself on the ground confidently. You're able to kind of um, take off, mm. um, produce force from the ground comfortably compared to the other side. It feels quite even in terms of confidence. Um, is that kind of what uh, the sort of characteristics that you might have been um, internalizing, trying to see if it's an okay level of pain or not? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So being able to run, the pain's mild, but doesn't inhibit with your ability to run. Uh, and doesn't, you know, you'd, obviously you don't end up limping or anything like that. And I think if you go out for a run to try and test it, if it doesn't work out, you just got to realise, well, today is not the day. You just got to stop and, and walk back home and, and don't keep pushing on because you'll regret it later on. You just got to find that right balance. 
Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. And I think with experience, you just get in tune with your body and get to feel what's going on. Definitely that experience, definitely learning from the past experiences. Like you might've said, okay, maybe this was a, a three out of 10 pain, or maybe this is an acceptable level of pain. And then it's not only until afterwards where the, it might've been aggravated the next day, it's probably a bit worse. And then you kind of reflect back on that experience and say, maybe those, that level of pain was a little bit too elevated from it's a bit beyond that acceptable level of pain. And so you kind of try and remember those past experiences and just like learn along the way, what your level of acceptable pain might be. Yes, that's right. So it's not the pain so much during your run, but it's what it's like in the next few days. So you think, yeah, in a couple of days, if I'm sore, you think back, what was I doing? The other point that you had was the importance of recovery days and the importance of sleep as well. And recognizing that, you know, when it comes to tendon adaptations, it's not during the running that enhances all the benefits. It's actually the recover after that exercise bout where the the tendon starts to get stronger, starts to adapt and starts to heal. Um, When it comes to the, that, I guess, insight um, was the, did you have to enhance your sleep? Did you have to enhance uh, the recovery days or was it just a process that you naturally followed? Um, I think one thing which really struck to me, the importance of sleep, but one of the best books I've written also read in recent years is called Why We Sleep uh, by Matthew Walker. He's a professor of uh, physiology from Berkeley. So it's the real deal. So he basically says sleep fixes everything. So um, sleep is when you're making a growth hormone, which is very important for recovery and also testosterone as well. So you don't get fitted during your run. You get fitted during the recovery phase afterwards. So it's not just the, the days off running, but also getting good sleep as well. And there's also been some interesting stuff about what for professional athletes called uh, sleep stacking. So you get some really good sleep before an event and that uh, helps improve things. So uh, good sleep improves things like, you know, how high you can jump, muscular force and, and VO2 max. And um, I guess we've all had experiences where we've had, you know, had a big night and you go out running and it just doesn't feel anything like you normally used to. So I, I really emphasize the importance of sleep. And in relation to your recovery, did you kind of reverse engineer that and recognize the importance and implement stuff to enhance your sleep? Or did you think that the, um, the level of the quality of sleep that you're already getting was adequate enough and just made sure that that was maintained? Uh, no, I, I sort of realized, you know, like everyone does sleep is good, but what, what this emphasizes is good quality sleep and one of the, the big tips that Matthew Walker gives is um, having a sleep schedule. So you not only have an alarm when you wake up, but you set a time when you go to bed. So and you wind down before you go to bed as well. So you're not on your devices or you know watching TV or doing anything else stimulating. You know you turn down the lights a bit and you know get into bed by ten o'clock. So you get a, a solid ten hours good quality sleep. And the, the other thing is looking at what interferes with sleep. So certainly caffeine. Uh, in the evenings bad and, and alcohol is bad. It interferes with the, 
the type of sleep you're having. So the, the, the beneficial type of sleep is uh, REM sleep and, um, and deep slow wave sleep. That's where all the good stuff happens during the sleep, not light sleep. Hmm. The other point that you made, um, one of the, the stuff in the email pre- preparing for this content was the tune your body to stay in tune of your body to like kind of gauge its limits. And often when I talk about running injuries or preventing injuries, it's trying to establish the current capacity that you have, establish the adaptation zone that you're currently within and not exceed that adaptation zone. Otherwise the body starts breaking down rather than building up. And the next question that a runner has is, well, how do you actually know where your limits are? How do you know um, the threshold that will take you into that injury zone and just below that, which is that nice, sweet adaptation zone? And had you had any experience with that? Had you tried to um, come up with any strategies in order to gauge where your limits were? Um, I think it comes a lot with experience. So obviously that's very difficult for a new runner, but with years of running, you get in in tune with your body and you can sort of feel with how things are going during the run and you you have a memory for what that feels like in the days after as well. And I think one strategy is like every time you go out for a run, it's not going to be a smash out run that you're going to post on Strava and, and think, yeah, that's fantastic. But I think uh, a good strategy, a lot of people have talked about the 80-20 rule, where 80% of your runs are just uh, an easy run and only 20% of the time are like speed work or intervals. So it's, it's very important to, to balance the over the week the type of running you're doing and, and don't feel you have to go out and you know smash it out every time you go. That's very important. For sure. I think that 80-20 rule not only has good applications for recovery from injury, but also for a good balance for performance as well, because you kind of want to build a big base of low intensity so that the legs are fresh enough for upping those higher intensities. Um, So that's a, a really nice lesson. And I think when it also comes to recovery, when people like, well, where is my adaptation zone right now? Where can I how can I test it out without it flaring up? Well, sometimes my advice would be you can, if we're unsure of where that gauge is, we're unsure of where your limits are, let's just start embarrassingly slow, embarrassingly low and build up from there because eventually we're going to reach your adaptation zone. Even if for the first couple of weeks, we're underloading you, at least we're a bit more cautious rather than just guessing and you going out and overdoing things and flaring things up and making things considerably worse. So um, around this topic of like just gauging those limits, sometimes it's nice just to underdo yourself because runners kind of have that. It's a very um, common characteristic to easily overdo things based on, you know, they just want to get out there or maybe it's frustration. They haven't ran for a long period of time and they just want to get over this injury and they just overdo things. Um, did you find that that 80-20 distribution, um, did you find that was beneficial for your performance as well as your injury? Yes, I think so. I think people have got to realise that like doing a long, slow run is not just you know, something to fill in the time, but it's actually something that's quite, really quite beneficial for building your overall uh, performance, particularly in longer runs as well. So, yeah, certainly, you know, don't feel embarrassed about it. Like, 
what I heard is like Kipchoge does his long runs at six minutes per kilometer. So if the world record holder can do long runs at an incredibly slow pace, it's, there's got to be something good in there. When, when it comes to the um, strength training itself as well, I know you mentioned a bit earlier that strength training had a real um, benefit in your recovery. How far into having this PHT did you start doing some of the um, some of those weight training exercises? Well, I when I got fed up when it was really bad and I was having trouble walking, I just like you know stopped running and then got into the gym and then you know, had a personal train in the gym and, and learned how to do some lifting. And that was something that was quite new to me. And um, I think the evidence now is that quite different from what was told to runners in the past, that you know, lifting heavy is very beneficial for tendons. And uh, what we don't realize is when we run, it puts you know, several times your body weight through tendons, you know, particularly say the Achilles. And uh, humans are really good runners because your, your tendons are sort of so strong and store energy that it's very important you have good, healthy tendons to improve your running efficiency. Mm. So I guess if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't had much experience around that, where was that starting point for you and how did it progress? How long did it take to progress? Oh, it probably took several months. I mean, what surprised me is that if you regularly lift weights, you can quite quickly improve your strength which quite surprised me. And it's, it's not certainly not bulking up, you know, you're not ending up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it's just improving the strength without the bulk. So probably about, you know, three to six months, you get a significant benefit. And what surprised me is I could go out and, you know, run hard to a hard 5k and I just wasn't sore anymore. It was quite surprising the benefit. I guess my, my next question would be like, how would you progress? Like exactly what exercises were you doing? And um, from your starting point to, you know, several months down the track, were you following a particular method of how to increase the weight or how to increase the sets and reps? Yes. Um, I think the, the weight to choose is what you can reasonably do uh, 10 reps off and then only increase about 10% per week. Um, and, just another thing which comes to mind is that when COVID happened, I stopped going to the gym and I wasn't doing that, you know, heavy weight strength training. And that's when my proximal hamstring tendinopathy came back. So I think it probably means that if you've had tendon problems, it's probably good to have a, a maintenance program of weight training to keep your tendons healthy and stop an injury coming back. What were your favorite exercises? Do you have like two or three that you regularly would go back to that you found benefit beneficial? Oh, yes. I think carefully doing a deadlift, and I want to emphasize carefully because if you don't do it carefully, if you do it you know, too heavy or too much, that's obviously going to stir it up. You're going to go way beyond your adaptation zone or the Goldilocks zone where it's just right. Um, the other one would be squats, and the other one is uh, lunges with dumbbells. And I think that also weights are better than machines. Machines, for people new to the gym, machines seem something new and interesting and easy. But I think the important thing about weights, it means you have to incorporate balance and coordination and your core as well. Whereas a machine is very efficient as exercising you know, one particular muscle, but it, it misses out on coordination and uh, engaging your core during the exercise. 
Great. When it comes to the the patients, you said like tendons take time to heal, and um, I guess you you may have experienced like this slow uh, improvement. Um, can you just talk about on like a time scale when you when you mentioned that tendons are so uh, are slow to heal and to have patients, like what that time frame was like for you? Yes, I mean, you just have to understand tendons have very poor blood flow. It's not like a muscle, which has great blood flow and can heal quickly. So, and particularly as you get older, so that your composition of your tendons tends to change as well. So it's it's really important to realize, one, your tendinopathy will get better. Uh, don't be exasperated. You've just got to give a patience, sometimes extreme patience. So I'd say at least three months, probably six months just to this very graded rehab uh, with weights and sensible return to running and being in tune with your body. So people with tendinopathy just have to be very patient, but it will get better. Everything gets better. Yeah. And did you notice that same time scale? Did you notice around about that three, four months was the um, that time frame of noticing improvement? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so if you just stick with it, uh, maybe go to the gym, you know, two, three times a week or buy some weights at home. And that's what I did during COVID. Um, that's just sort of the right dose. But again, for each person, just being in tune to your body and just seeing how it responds to that loading and making, because one thing you can do, being going to the gym is a bit like running. You can get a bit overexcited and just do too much and then end up too sore, particularly at the beginning. Yeah, good lesson. And I often see like people ask me questions. I often see like Facebook posts of people with a certain tendinopathy for several months and they just ask, will it ever get better? Because there can be some circumstances where it just doesn't, it seems like never ending and constant battling like flare ups or, you know, just um, plateaus in improvement. And what I like to have that same time frame in mind to say, it's like around four to six months is what most of the research shows, but that's four to six months from when you do really well-structured rehab. If you just continue to mismanage it, it can drag on a lot longer. It's four to six months from a good strength program and like all the stuff we've discussed today, that's the type of time scale we're um, expecting. And so sometimes those expectations are quite met, but obviously the, the maintenance side of it is um, quite important as well. You might be a few months in, notice some improvements and then like your experience back off the strength training, like not have access to gyms and back off that heavy kind of strength work. And then there might be a bit of a resurgence in um, symptoms. And so throughout those four to six month timeframes, it needs to be quite diligent, needs to be quite progressive. And um, it's to be expected that some pain would arise if there was a, a bit of a lack in progress or if you were to, back off a lot of that strength work or a lot of all that, those beneficial components in your rehab. Um, I think that's really important to consider. And um, uh, those expectations of those, those timeframes is um, really important. So I am curious about your other experiences with treatments and treatment modalities. Um, I know you said that you've mentioned um, PRP was um, one of those, and you, you may have had it twice, I believe. What was your experience with that, and what was the the outcome? What did you experience? Well, PRP is interesting. It seems to be quite popular amongst professional athletes, like football players, and I think like 
Tiger Woods has had it and, and other people. The, the evidence is probably supportive. There's been some systematic reviews of it for different types of tendinopathy. Um, so I think for an individual, if you've tried everything else, it's something worth trying, but I certainly wouldn't promote it as a, as a magic bullet. Um, so seek out a you know, sports physician that has experience in it, particularly a sports physician that treats, say, you know, a professional team that's uh, used to elite athletes, not just someone who does it occasionally. Um, so try and you know, search around and find an expert that works um, at a high level um, uh, sports group and try it out. Um, so the, I mean, the rationale about it is they take some blood out of your arm and they spin it down the centrifuge and the, the top of the, where the red cells are, they take off a little tiny bit, which contains, contains the platelets, which is said to contain growth hormone. And using ultrasound, the sports doc will um, uh, inject it right next to the injury and try and promote healing. So that's the rationale about it. It's also been used for osteoarthritis at the knee sometimes and maybe gives a little bit of benefit. But it's, and it's also like used for people have it stuck in their faces to look better. And so, it, you know, there's a few sort of extreme uses of it. But I think, you know, the, the systematic review of its use in sporting injuries, particularly tendon injuries, is, is probably supportive. So if people haven't tried it and they're looking for something new mm. to add in, then they should give it a go. And I think just the general principle that there's, there's not just one thing you need to do for tendinopathy. Um, you need to look at the whole gamut of things. Like you know, I mentioned sleep, but there's also nu nutrition as well. Um, so it's, it's the whole package. And I, I guess one of the interesting things related to that, um, you've probably heard of uh, David Bailesford, who was the head of performance for Cycling UK. And when he came on board in 2003, the UK cycling team was hopeless. They'd only ever won one gold medal at the Olympics. And he came along with this philosophy called the, the marginal aggregation of gain of the, the aggregation of marginal gains. So he thought, you know, if he can tweak, you know, 50 different things by a fraction of a percent, the overall benefit will be quite huge. So I think that's an important philosophy towards your uh, rehab management and training as well. Hmm. Uh, when I look at the research around PRP and look at um, people's experiences as well. It does seem to be, I kind of put it in the same basket as shockwave therapy where it can work really well for yeah. some people if they're in a particular category, like it, it tends for some tendons works really well, but for other people, it's just like indifferent. It, well, it doesn't necessarily make it worse, um, but they just don't see much of a benefit. And it seems like there is a certain characteristic or a certain type of person who will favor one or, or the other. However, very similar to shockwave, I think if it is beneficial, then it's only a short-term benefit and you need to do all the other long-term things really well alongside it, accompanying it maybe like once the PRP settled down after a period of like one or two weeks. But you can't expect it to be the silver bullet, like you said, especially for the long term. It seems like it's designed to, if anything, uh, like reduce pain and like just like trigger, stimulate some sort of healing, but then needs to be backed up by that long term, mm. um, you know, robust evidence based stuff like strength training, like the, the load management, like being progressive with your rehab. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And I think that sort of reflects a lot of 
people, whether it's you know in sport or their health, they just want to get a pill or a one-off fix that'll that'll sort things out. And it's there's not just one thing that'll fix it. And you know, PRP may be useful, as you said, for some people. Um, it's certainly you know not harmful. It's safe. Um, so if you look for something to, to add on, it's it's worth giving it a giving it a go. Hmm. And how about your personal experience? Did you notice a benefit? Did you notice any reduction in pain symptoms or any increase in function after having the PRP? Yes. I mean, initially when I got it, it seemed to be quite helpful for several weeks, but then it just sort of faded off. So, and I think again, my own sort of load management at that time was wrong. So I was thought, oh yes, I've had the magic injection. I'll get, you know, back out running on the soccer field or, you know, doing 5Ks. And initially it was good. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. But then, you know, as he mentioned, it's, it's had a limited benefit. So it really needs to be backed up as, as a component of a proper rehab um, scheme. Mm. And the second PRP that you had, was there a similar um, benefit initially? Um, I Yeah, it was. It wasn't as good as the first one. Um, maybe... I mean, with all these interventions, it's, it's, it's very hard to separate the true effect from a placebo effect. And I think, you know, you go to the famous sports doc who, you know, is responsible for a professional team. You think, yeah, this is going to be great. Um, so there's high expectations and, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit hard to separate what's going on in your mind to what's going on in your tendon. So I think, you know, the second time it wasn't as, I didn't find it as beneficial, but, um, you know, for listeners, you know, if a person wants to try it, there's nothing to stop them trying it. But being mindful, it's a component of the whole rehab process. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I always think like before doing shockwave, before doing PRPs or any other injection-based therapies, just get good rehab basics down pat. Like do all the good stuff first, do all the sleep, the strength, the load modifications, do all that properly first for a good three to four months to see if there's any benefit with that before getting the, that kind of quick fix. That's a, a little bit hit and miss sometimes as well. And some people might not like that, those patient that patients, some people might um, be encouraged by other like specialists or doctors to just quickly have the injection. But um, I do think the, the foundation needs to be set in place first and, um, I think like based on the clients I've seen in the past and the experiences I've encountered in the past, I think you just, um, the quick fix is not always just going to be there. Um, you do, you do need to do the the right things and you do need to have patience. Um, I'm curious about your other treatment, uh, remedies, any other methods, any other like hands-on therapies that you may have found beneficial or ones that you just found weren't really that effective i think that might be helpful to go through yeah i mean another thing i had at the physio which i'd never had before was dry needling which is sort of when you see it it looks a bit like acupuncture you know so with your hamstring you just lie face down they stick a series of needles into your hamstring and you know my own personal experience maybe it was a little bit better um, so it's, I don't think it's something which is going to make your your tendons get better. It's sort of a symptomatic relief. Um, and similarly, you know, hands-on massage, it certainly feel a lot better afterwards. 
um, but I don't think it helps in the healing process. I think it's a, a really good, you know, symptomatic relief if you're quite sore. So you go out of the, the physio's rooms and think, oh yeah, that's a lot, feels a lot better. But then a week later, um, you're still pretty much at the same level. Um, another thing I did similar to that, um, you can, I've got a um, impact massage gun, which seem, if, if I use that, that provides quite quick relief just in terms of pain, but it, it doesn't really help healing or p progression over you know, the long term. But it's, it's a good relief and you know, it's handy to have at home. You just do it for you know, a couple of minutes and the, you know, the hamstring feels better. Okay. Uh, I do think they can be classed within the same like basket. I think dry needling, massage, massage guns, like those hands-on sort of things. Um, while they do relieve pain a lot for some, um, maybe that's just enough to say if they have a treatment and their pain subsides quite substantially for a couple of days. Okay. Well now you can get back into doing maybe, um, your deadlift exercises, or maybe you can get back into the gym and do a little bit more while these pain levels are quite suppressed mm. so that you can be proactive in this yes. sort of moment. Because as we know, massage, dry needling, massage guns, they are quite short term, but you can use it to your advantage in being more proactive within that window of benefits um, so that you're kind of combining the short term benefits with the long term benefits and um, I guess being as efficient as you possibly can be. Yes, and also similarly, other types of symptom relief, like taking non-steroidals, I'd be pretty careful about that. Um, I mean, anti-inflammatories, non-steroidals, you know, they can be quite helpful for pain relief, but um, there may be a bit of a, a concern that it may interfere with, with healing because it's, I think it's, when you first get an injury, the initial inflammation is probably quite important to promote healing. And if you dampen down that inflammation by taking anti-inflammatories, it's probably not beneficial to help your healing. So I, I tend to stand, um, steer away from anti-inflammatories. Hmm. I think there's also research to show that uh, long-term use of um, these sort of medications can actually be detrimental to tendon health as well, especially if it's a tendinopathy. I think yes. the ability to heal to produce force through those tendons i think they're inhibited and um, detrimental for those and sometimes i think that with the there's a new um, injury acronym around um, injury management it's like peace and love and it's a huge like long acronym mm -hmm. but um, in the the peace they've got the a and the a stands for avoid anti-inflammation medication um, because it of the, the research that has shown that it can be detrimental in the long term. And if you are experiencing quite a lot of pain and you are quite irritable, um, sometimes I do prescribe it, but it's only for a day or two, just calm down symptoms and then get off it. I think some people tend yes. to overdo it a little bit and go for, you know, one to two weeks of taking these sort of medications, which isn't really recommended. Yeah, that's right. Just very short term for a couple of days, just as needed during the acute period. And also similarly, uh, injection, injections of cortisone-type medicines for, for tendons, that they, they definitely settle down pain, but they may end up causing long-term weakness of the tendon. So it could actually, you could end up being a lot worse in the longer term. So I'd be quite cautious about cortisone injections for tendons. 
Mm, yeah, good. Well, um, very important to to highlight that as well. What as we wrap up, like, what have you returned back to, like, over the past, you know, couple of months? What have your symptoms been like, and what is your current capacity? Um, it's really good now. Like um, yesterday, I went out and did a, a the virtual sit to surf. So I did fourteen k's hard, um, and today I'm completely fine. So I'm, no pain this morning. Um, sitting down now, there's no pain. So that was, you know, a good hard run, but, you know, maximum capacity and over a long duration, it was completely fine. So, you know, just to give you know, listeners some hope that, you know, with patience and the right program, you will get better. But you just got to be patient and realize there's tendons have, you know, poor blood supply, they're very slow to heal. And if you're older, it's even even more difficult but just just be positive get the right help um and avoid doing the things which are wrong yeah well and like the the stuff that we've talked about today to actually help your your rehab has been um one of the foundations for a lot of injuries as well you know you're talking about low levels of pain during exercise is acceptable you've talked about the importance of recovery and sleep and then making sure that you have the right intensity distributions and like not pushing yourself too much obviously the importance of weight training and recovery expectations um, and a few of those other short-term kind of modalities to go alongside it is there any other takeaways any other things that we haven't discussed yet that you think people like struggling to recover from a running related injury or pht um, might benefit from um i think the the two important things, one is patience, which we've mentioned, and two, there's no one quick fix. You need to implement a whole broad-based program for your rehabilitation. And just set your expectations and, and listen carefully to your body. So if you go out for a run and um, then a few days later you think, oh, that's sore, and then you think back to your run, what was I doing? You know, what was, you know, how hard was I going? How long was I running for? And how often am I running? So that's the, the whole total load on your tendon over the week. So you just got to manage that. So it, it's no good thinking, oh, yes, I feel okay today. I'll go and run a hard 10K. And then that sets you back. And, you know, a few days later, you think, ah, oh, I was silly. So when you go out for a run, you think about, your thinking is about not just what it's like today, but what it's like in the next few days and weeks and months. And particularly if you're training for an event, if you've got an event coming up in three months' time, that's what your focus is on. How am I going to be my best on that day? Not how am I going to be my, you know, how am I going to go over the next day or week or so? So it's, it's a long-term focus. Yeah, really well said. Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for telling your story. It was really insightful and will help a lot of people. So thank you. Okay, great to chat. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.